So this morning was about communal peace, and this is going to be about personal peace. And um, this is the wrong time to listen to anybody speaking about anything, isn't it? Uh, but I do think that this, this could really help us. And I referred this morning to the fact that the, the English have the joy of no religious church um, because there just isn't church. People don't go to church. And obviously things are different here where a lot of people have had a church background. Some of you will have um, had the joy of genuine church and some of you will have suffered the pain, as we were thinking about it this morning, of religious church. And religious church does not help you with personal peace that much. And so if you find things coming up, it's not just you, it's many people, but it is very important to try to come to a place of personal peace. And I believe in your capacity to do that. I, I believe that what you believe is really important. I think what you believe directs a lot of your life, and you all have the capacity to put your faith in different things. For example, if you look at your shoes, were you absolutely certain they were the correct purchase, or you, did you just kind of operate by faith? If you think about your jobs, were you absolutely two plus two equals four, absolutely philosophically convinced it was the right job, or did you act somewhat on the basis of evidence and make a decision by faith? Your partner, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, were you absolutely certain, or was there an element of faith? I think it was all faith, wasn't it? And so what you believe is very important, and you know how to believe, so I'm just calling out of you the capacity to believe. So, we're going to a bar. Ready? We're going to a bar. You're going to a bar specifically with a friend of yours, somebody you know and love. And just before you're ready to go, they call you. In fact, now, change that. They message you, because we're so contemporary here. They message you with an electronic telephone to tell you they're going to turn up with two friends, if that's okay. Is it okay if they bring two friends of theirs? And you're a little bit disconcerted, because you know, enjoying special time with your friend. But if they're friends of the, your friend, it'll probably be okay, you think. And that's certainly what your friend thinks. I'm really like these two guys, and I'm sure you're really going to get on. Now, you should know that's a red flag right there. Because how many times do you really like your relationship with this person and you think, actually, you know what, I'm, I'm going to put them together with my other friend over here and they're bound to love each other. How many times has that not worked? Why is that? It's because we're profoundly narcissistic. We believe that if we like them, obviously everybody else will and it turns out to be untrue. Quite often, doesn't it? Shocking, but true. The theory of the other friend that's obviously going to be great and obviously isn't. So, you're in the bar, you're waiting for your friend, your friend comes in, behind them, you can see the other two friends. And even as they're walking towards you, you kind of know this is really not going to work. You kind of know it's something in the way they walk, something in the way they look, the way they even smile. They haven't even said anything, but they're wafting towards you in a sort of haze of unpleasantness, and you kind of know it. The first friend introduces himself to you as Mr. Gilt. And uh, he turns out to be, as the evening wears on, a total nightmare. But he's nothing by comparison with his horrible brother, Shane. But you're stuck with them for the night. And the thing is, guilt and shame, they are true weapons of self-destruction. They've got the power to ruin lots of things. Your night in the bar, and also your experience of your relationship with God. Now, guilt, you don't need me to tell you about guilt, but I'm just going to. Guilt 
is the awareness that you really shouldn't have done something. Sometimes we know it's wrong, even when we're doing it, but we just keep doing it anyway. And sometimes looking back, we realize it was in fact wrong. But in one way or another, uh, we're left with the sickening feeling that we have to one degree or another wounded our conscience and that this will have to be put right in order for us to feel okay. Mr. Guilt. Now, we can feel guilty about real things. In other words, we probably should feel guilty about certain things, like, for instance, having done some, something to hurt someone, like doing something illegal or morally or spiritually wrong. Um, but we can also be affected by guilt about false things, too. Beliefs like, you should never be angry. You're a Christian. You should never be angry. In fact, you should never have negative thoughts about any person. My personal favorite, this is real, you should never, as a Christian, eat chocolate. Um, and these beliefs have been drummed into us by authority figures like our parents, our wider family, um, or our church leaders. Now, in the big scheme of things, is it actually possible to avoid running into Mr. Guilt? Not really, because everyone, including people who love God very much, like you, um, and are trying to follow him, like you, struggle with unresolved areas of their lives. And when Jesus says, as I mentioned this morning, that he's come to seek and to save the lost, he wasn't joking, <laughs> or exaggerating, or just referring to the time before you became a Christian. Everybody who comes to Jesus really, really needs to be saved. From what? Well, really, from being left as we were before we met Jesus. In other words, alone being left to ourselves, with all the poor to shocking consequences that that has for our behavior towards ourselves, other people, and God. Now, as I'm saying this, some people are only too aware of their sense of guilt, and they're internally, right now, looking normal on the outside, but going, oh, woe is me, I am a slug, he's speaking directly to me, I knew he'd speak to me about guilt if I came on this thing and I'd feel guilty, because I often feel guilty. So some people are quite aware of a sense of guilt, oh, woe is me, I am a slug. And then other people theoretically believe in guilt, but would be actually quite hard-pressed to give you any real evidence of their guilt. Now, that may be for a number of reasons. Just stay with me. Some of this is quite rude. That might be because their life is tightly confined and they are very risk-avoidant, so they don't really do much wrong. I remember one of the most shocking pastoral encounters I ever had was with a woman who told me that she could not believe that she was having critical and negative thoughts about her friend. And I thought to myself, who are you? I mean, I do that every day. Anyway, um, so there are those sorts of people, and then there are people who just lack self-awareness. And they are actually in denial about most of their life. And then there are people that reflect on anything very much, including their behavior or their motivations. They just do life. And to use a technical term, there are also esteem-sensitive people. And they actually have a mortifying fear picked up early in childhood and sometimes very much enforced in church that if they are not very, very good, they will not be loved None of which means that they avoid guilt. It just means they aren't that sensitive to the reality of their guilt or they're actually terrified of admitting it. And churches which set a standard for you of rules and laws and religion 
are very, very good at creating that association from childhood onwards that God's love for you is dependent on your good behavior. So we like to mitigate our guilt, don't we, um, by using terms like lapses in judgment. I made a lapse in judgment. It's the favorite of a politician when they've been caught out. A lapse in judgment, or the English like to say, something I'm not proud of. Now, if we were to follow through the implications of this, this means that we are giving the entirely false impression that most of the time I exercise superlative moral judgment um, or accidentally communicates the horrible truth that I'm actually extremely proud of myself most of the time, if you just follow those two lines of reasoning through. Now, of course, in non-Christian land, there is a strong-felt need to accentuate the positive about who I am because of the mantra that we have to love ourselves. Now, why do non-Christians have to love themselves? It's because they actually have a love deficit, because they don't know the king of love. So they have to dredge it up from somewhere and insist that they are lovable and that everybody else around them should love them. And also, they have no mechanism for the processing of their guilt. But whatever we do with guilt or don't do with guilt, my pastoral experience tells me that for many, many Christians, guilt continues to hang around like a bad smell, despite what we sing about, like God is my joy. So there'll be people who will you know, go through the motions of singing God is my joy whilst feeling zero joy. They don't derive joy from their experience of God. They probably, you are my guilt, you are my guilt. Yep. You make me feel that I am. That's the truth. So listen, how do we spend as little time as possible in the company of Mr. Guilt? Well, here we go. Step one, ready? When you feel guilty, feel guilty. I know. So stop trying to suppress it, push it down, or pretend it's not there. Don't fill yourself with something else, which is the temptation. Just acknowledge that you feel guilty. And don't really spend a lot of time wondering about whether you should or you shouldn't feel guilty. I don't think that helps anybody. If you feel guilty, you, help, you feel guilty, right? Real guilt and false guilt are dealt with in the same way. So I pray for a woman who felt guilty about something for 15 years. 15 years. 15 years previously, her husband dropped dead at home. And she has felt guilty for 15 years that she didn't try to raise him from the dead. 15 years feeling guilty about the fact that she didn't try and raise him from the dead. That's a robbery of life, isn't it? Let's say God spoke directly into her ear and said, raise him from the dead. And she didn't. It could be dealt with in the same way as God said no such thing and her husband just died and she felt bad about the fact that she didn't pray for him. Dealt with in exactly the same way. Real guilt and false guilt are dealt with in exactly the same way. So why spend any time agonizing about just how real your guilt actually is? If you feel guilty, you flip and feel guilty, don't you? So I advise you to address guilt like this. Guilt. Let's take this outside. There will be times of failure, even for a magnificent specimen of integrity such as yourself, and you all look great. 
your shining integrity. But even for people like yourselves, who are basically a walking symbol for integrity, there will be times of failure. That is because we are fallen, and therefore we cannot control everything we ever do, everything we ever say, or everything we ever think. We have an unfathomable, hang on, we are unfathomable, unfathomable, unfathomable in our complexity. And we are told that our hearts are deceitful above all things. This means that we are sometimes a mystery to ourselves. We cannot always explain our own behavior, can we? And our failure really begins with the fallen heart, with our desires, most of which are the combination of genetic inheritance and the influence of our environment and the people in it. Established long, long ago, some of your responses today began when you were naught to three years old, before you even knew what you were doing. And those responses can be enforced by choices that other people make, by choices that we make, sometimes from childhood onwards. And it's almost like we can be stuck in a matrix of these choices that direct something of who we are. Look, doesn't a Christian make a difference to this kind of thing? Oh, yes, it does make it. I'm glad you said that. It does make a difference, but it's not the difference that Christians sometimes say it is. What difference does being a Christian make? Well, it's certainly true that the Holy Spirit is given to transform us, to completely transform us. So we've already been delivered from the penalty of sin, of which more in a moment, and we will one day be delivered from the presence of sin when Jesus returns and we see him face to face. But right now, where all of us are right now, we are actually in a process of being transformed, delivered from the power of sin, as we learn how to walk in the Spirit. Now, let's just have a little think about walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is not speaking in tongues. It's not hearing God's voice. That's not what Paul means when he talks about speaking, you know, walking in the Spirit. Now, I like speaking in tongues. I want every single one of you to speak in tongues just like Paul does. And I would like it even more, just like Paul, that you all prophesy. So I'm a big fan of tongues and prophecy. Absolutely. You're missing out if you don't do both, quite frankly. Just saying. But that is not walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is walking in everything significantly true of Jesus that is brought to you by the power of the Spirit. What is significantly true of Jesus? First of all, he died on the cross. Secondly, he's raised from the dead. Thirdly, he's at the right hand of the Father. Because you are in Christ, the phrase that's used again and again and again to describe you and me in the New Testament, you are in his death, which means that everything his death won for us is in you and you are in it. He's also in, you are also in his resurrection from the dead, which means that all the power of the resurrection is in you and you are in it. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, which means you have instant access all the time to the Father because you are in Jesus and he is in you. Got that? To walk in the Spirit is to walk in the knowledge of those things. That's walking in the Spirit every day, getting up every day. Thank you, Lord, that I have been crucified with Christ. Thank you that the power of the resurrection is alive in me. Thank you, Lord, that I have access to you all the time at any point of my life any point of this day. That's to walk in the Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit, we are changed. The fact that we are Christians does not change us. We're not changed by osmosis, by just having a Bible in our room. Do you know what I mean? How many times have you thought to yourself, I've got a Bible, and yet somehow I don't know anything about it? You know, because I haven't read it. So it's not like, by definition, we are changed. We are changed as we walk in all that is true of us as Christians. 
So, transformation does not happen anyway. It does not happen as we get older and wiser. It doesn't happen as we go, in Jesus' name, a sudden deliverance, bang! You know, Jesus, I, 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 casting out that spirit of lust, that spirit of smoking, that spirit of homosexuality. I'm casting it out, bang, shabam! No, that would be easy. If only it was that easy. You can have demons cast out of you, that's true. If you're stupid enough to engage in the occult, you might actually get a demon. But you can't catch them like sneezing. You can't catch them like a cold. It's actually quite difficult to be demonized, and it's quite difficult to get them out. But that's not you. You, you lot, are people who are caught in this matrix of choices that you have made and that other people have directed you to make, and you've confirmed in your own life. That is not demons, if only it was. <clears throat> Shabang. We are delivered as we have the courage to bring the broken parts of our life into the presence of God, like you did this morning with the church crap. As we bring those things to God, we stand a chance of being changed. Whilst we keep them to ourselves, nothing will change. So it's like all of us have got a, a piece of glass in our hand. We cut ourselves and we have glass in our hand. Nothing is going to remove that glass unless we open our hand. Right? If you keep it in, nothing will change. Sing as many songs as you want. Go to church as often as you want. Read the Bible as often as you want. Download teaching as often as you want. Until you open your hands and let God take that glass out, it will remain there. And it will actually get worse the longer it is in. It's your call. I believe in you as believers. I believe that you can believe things that will set you free. It's up to you. I believe in the choices you can make, 100%. But unless you make them, nothing ain't going to happen. Just saying. So ultimately, the antidote to our many shades of guilt is the cross, as we know. So is our guilt real? Think about something you might feel guilty about. I know that'll be quite easy. Think about it. Here it comes. Ooh. Think about that, right? Is your guilt real? Yes, it is. Or it might as well be if you feel guilty about it. So let's say it is. Has it really been dealt with at the cross? Yes, it has. How? Well, firstly, the truth is not being concealed at the cross. Wrongdoing is judged for what it is at the cross without excuse. The horror of the cross speaks of the horror of our wrongdoing and graphically demonstrates that sin leads to death. Have you noticed that all sin always leads to death? So, for example, if you sin against your friend, there's a death in your relationship. Any single time you sin, there is a measure of death. There's a measure of death in you, in your relationship with God. If you sin and basically hurt God or grieve the Spirit, there's a measure of death in your relationship with God. Sin always leads to death, always. The cross graphically demonstrates that. So there's no one's pretending that your sin was not terrible. No one's pretending it wasn't your fault. No one's pretending that a price doesn't have to be paid. However, this is where the wonder begins. This is why I came to Los Angeles and sat next to quite an overbearing person sitting next to me, despite having carefully guaranteed that no one would be sitting next to me. This is why I squeezed myself into that seat for you, to tell you this, to remind you of this, and to hope that it will go in. This is the wonder. We, the guilty ones, do not pay the price. Jesus, our representative, stands in our place at God's righteous judgment on all wrongdoing at the cross. And he is uniquely and alone able 
to represent us because he's fully human, although he himself was without sin. He's also uniquely able to represent God at the cross because he's fully divine. This means not only that sin is judged for what it is, but also that reconciliation to God our Father is made possible. And that is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 19, God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world. So to recap, has our wrongdoing been exposed for what it is? Yes, at the cross. Has it been dealt with or paid for? Yes, it has, though miraculously not by us, but by the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, phrase we're so familiar with. Is the slate therefore clean? Is our guilt taken away? Yes, it is. That's why Paul says there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, a legal term that means just as if I'd never sinned, just as if I'd never sinned even though I have sinned, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, Romans 3, 22 to 25. Does that mean that our sin doesn't matter, that we can just do whatever we want? Now, as soon as we ask that question, at least we're asking the right question because it implies that we're one step away from receiving forgiveness. Well, does that just mean I can do anything then? Right? If you're actually thinking that, you're thinking the right thing. It means you actually understood it. So basically, yeah, you can. You can do anything you want. You can. I remember a church leader being asked, you know, can Christians have demons? And he said they can have anything they want. You can have anything you want. But when I got married, I didn't get married to commit adultery. I didn't think to myself, great, I'm married now. This is the perfect opportunity for adultery. You can do anything. But if you do, you'll suffer the death that always comes with sin. Sin always leads to death. It always matters. Always. It always will. It will never not matter. But let's reason together. Can we just think this through? I know you're familiar with this, but I want you to think this through because this is where the rubber hits the road. Given the lengths that God has gone to to take away our guilt, who are we to retain our feelings of guilt when we sin? You guilt retainer. Who are you to retain your guilt given what God has done to take it away? Just think about it. What are we saying? Are we saying, my guilt is too great. You don't understand. My guilt is too great. It's just like a mountain. Is that what we're saying? I actually don't think we are. I think we're saying we have no reference for grace. And this is where your churches often haven't helped you. Now, bread will help you. But your churches often won't have helped you because they don't do enough grace. This isn't a surprise because the world with which we are familiar does not operate by grace. It operates by merit or deserving. And so, for example, the Ford Motor Company has 70 grades of employer. So you get a different quality of parking space, office space, depending on how high up you are. That's a perfect example of your culture, which is driven by working hard, achieving and succeeding And these are badges of honor amongst you. And they are in my culture too. 
So basically, we're taught to believe that if we have failed, then we have to put it right. That's the problem. We, we believe what we believe as Christians, but actually we believe what we've absorbed throughout our entire life, through our family, through our jobs, in every respect. What we actually believe is if we've effed it up, we need to actually undo the damage ourselves. That's what we believe. We also believe if we, if we are very good, we deserve to be rewarded. We, that's what we actually believe in our heart of hearts, I think. The problem is that grace can only be freely received. It cannot be earned. So ultimately, all wrongdoing is an offense against God. It's a statement of our self-reliance. It's a contradiction of who we're supposed to be. It's a manifestation of lack of trust in God. But let us reason together, ladies and gentlemen, if God has judged our behavior to be wrong and dealt with our wrongdoing himself because he's infinitely kind, forbearing, and gracious towards us, who are we to continue to stand at a distance? Who are we to stand at a distance? Who do we think we are? If God has done this for us, who are we to retain our guilt and stand at a distance? Would it not be better just to fall on the floor at his feet right now? Shall I stop speaking so we can all just fall on the floor and believe what we say we believe? What do you think? What, seriously, what do you think? I believe in your capacity to believe. You know what? There's no point in the well-known protest. It's all right. Here's the protest. Ready for the protest? I should know better. I should know better. You don't understand. It's all right for young Christians. It's all right for people who don't really know, but I, I, the great I, me, I, the specimen of integrity that I, I should know better. You should. Yeah, you should. Guess what, though? That is not news. You should have known better before you became a Christian, too. You are without excuse, because if you look around you, you see the creation of God. You always should have known better. There was never a time when you shouldn't have known better. The fact that you've just realized it is neither here nor there. It's not a strong protest in the face of what God has done. I'm just taking away all reasons for retaining guilt. Have you got a problem with guilt? Let's leave it behind in the room with the strange carpet design. Let's leave it behind. Seriously, let's leave it behind now. Let's not carry it around like a stinking bag of rubbish, for trash, for any more time whatsoever. Let's just do it. Let's just let Jesus, the trash man of the world, do what he does best and take away the trash. Do you, th do you fancy that? you think that might be quite good? We'll come back to it. You don't seem convinced. Let's just leave it behind. It's a special offer. Let's see it as a special offer. One day only, you lucky, lucky people, free yourself by accepting his forgiveness and then take yourself off the hook by forgiving yourself. You actually need to do both. You need to receive his forgiveness and you need to forgive yourself. Why? Because he's forgiven you. If the God of the universe has forgiven you, the judge of the universe has forgiven you, it stands to reason that you will surely forgive yourself. Or what are you saying? Is it a fair deal? No, it's not fair. It's infinitely gracious. God does not deal in fairness. He deals in grace, thanks be to God, in the light of the cross. That's why James tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. Even James gets it. 
Mercy triumphs over judgment. James's book largely belongs in the Old Testament, but basically that is a great phrase that even James has understood. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Say that to yourself. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the judgment is true, but God's mercy triumphs over the truth, right? Grace is not about giving people what they deserve. Hence the innumerable parables. Jesus, do you remember Jesus? You're following him, right? Um, just remind you, you Christians and everything, right? Christian little Christ, you're following Jesus. Jesus, the Jesus you follow, told a lot of parables about grace, didn't he? This is my favorite, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. So beginning of the day, he finds some responsible workers that have actually turned up at the beginning of the day to be employed to work all day under the sweating, burning sun, gathering whatever they're gathering, doing something agricultural. And then he goes back about midday where the, you know, some pretty crappy workers have turned up and thought, well, we'd better do something. He employs them, they do some work. And then the absolute losers turn up at the end of the day when they're no longer hungover to put in just a little bit of money, to, get, to put in a little bit of work to get a little bit of money. Because a little bit of money is better than no money. And he employs them. The end of the day comes and he pays them all the same wage. It is an outrage. It makes no financial sense. It's a contradiction of employer-employee relationships. Everything about it is completely wrong. Wrong. Mrs. Justice is outraged by Mrs. Grace. It's an outrage. It's a parable about what God is like and how he will do, he will be as gracious as he wants to be towards the undeserving. He loves that. He loves to be gracious to the undeserving. Let us reason together. It is only as we return to an open-hearted relationship with God, that we stand any chance of being changed. Open-hearted and feeling guilty cannot coexist. You cannot have an open-hearted relationship with God and retain your guilt. Which do you want? Do you want an open-hearted relationship with God or do you want your guilt? You choose. I believe in your capacity to choose. I 100% believe in you. I believe in every single one of you. I believe that you can, you can receive from God or you can retain your feelings of guilt. I mean, it's up to you. I know which one I do, but what, I can't do it for you. I can encourage you to do it. So yes, you should have known better. And yes, you shouldn't still be struggling with whatever it is. But theoretically, but if you want to stop, you have to reconnect with God. That's the thing. So just as we can only enter into this relationship with Jesus by grace, we can only continue in it by grace. Just as Jesus' death liberates us from the penalty of sin, his death is also liberating us from the power of sin. You are in Jesus, which means you are in the death he died to sin. But this only works for you if you are living closely with him in an open-hearted relationship in which you do not conceal your weakness or pretend it isn't there, but you do desperately throw yourself upon him to receive his strength. That's an open-hearted relationship with God. It's not pretense. It's not putting on a show. It's the reality, and it needs you to be open and him to give you his grace. Guilt stinks, but not as much as his slimy brother shame. Guilt is the awareness that I've done something wrong. Shame is the pervasive feeling that I am wrong. Guilt beats us up a bit, and then shame jumps, jumps on top of us and overpowers our sense of self. 
We either draw conclusions about ourselves based on our behavior, often our continuing behavior, or because of negative verdicts of important people um, that we've actively or by implication um, had pronounced over us, like you are worthless or you are unlovable. These are, these are killing statements. Internalized verdicts of this kind are self-destructive in themselves, and they lead to patterns of behavior amongst people who believe them that, are, that enforce the verdict. So the antidote to shame is to insist on seeing yourself as God sees you. Let's take this outside shame. You are not who you think you are. You are not who other people think you are. You are who you think the most important person in your life thinks you are. Should we do that again? It's the theory of the looking glass self. You are not who you think you are. You are not who other people think you are. You are who you think the most important person in your life thinks you are. So if the most important person in your life is G-O-D, you are going to think you are a son of God or a daughter of God. If he's not, you're going to have some other verdict. Are you the son of your father and mother or other people that might have defined your identity or are you a son or a daughter of God? Which one are you? I believe in your capacity to choose to answer that question one way or the other. I believe in you. Make the choice. Make the choice. Make it again. Actually, I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. It's the only identity that matters. It's the only way of dealing with shame. Ultimately, we are called to believe that we are who God thinks we are. Simple truth number one is that shameful behavior is incompatible with our identity as sons and daughters of God. And strictly speaking, we have died to these things and we do not need to walk in them. But simple truth number two is that shameful internal verdicts about our worth are incompatible with God's conviction of our worth as sons and daughters. So to live in the certain knowledge of God's love for us is to live without shame. And vice versa, to live in the certain knowledge of God's love is to get rid of shame. Do you want to get rid of shame or do you want to live with shame and without the love of God? See, you can't have both. You cannot have guilt and shame and the love of God. Which one do you want? Which one? So, why does God love us? Why does God love someone like you? God loves you because he 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 is love. God's love for you comes from him. God's love for you is not in any way affected by your behavior. It's not based on whether you're a good boy or a bad boy. It's not affected. It doesn't grow if you're particularly um, spiritual. It doesn't diminish if you're not. God loves you because he loves you. You're irrelevant to the experience of love that he feels for you. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he made you as an expression of who he is. Right? He will always love you. He will never, ever stop loving you. Shameful or guilt-inducing behavior can spoil the experience of our relationship with God, but nothing can separate us from his love. God knows exactly what we're like, and he continues to love us anyway. His love is patient and kind and keeps no record of wrongs. His love endures all things from us and perseveres despite us. His love will entirely win out in our lives in the end. He will bring all things to completion in your life in the end. He will do it. With very little help from you, he will do it. Despite you, around you, through you, he will do it. He's that good. In fact, to say that God is a good, good father, you're a good, good father, yeah, right. that's just not true. God is far, far better than anything that that analogy could ever suggest to our minds. He's much better than that. The best father, he's infinitely better than the best father. 
He wants us to believe in his love for us and to stop being defined by the voices of our past. Our self-worth is not based on what other people have said or what they say. It isn't judged by how successful or what happens in our lives. Our self-worth is based on the love of God in all things. I am coming to an end. I know that you're struggling. I can understand. So think about these verses from the Bible that you know. God so loved the world, John 3.16, that he gave his only son... We should not perish, but should have eternal life. God so loved the world. This is another one, 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave his son to die for us. Here's another one, 1 John 3.1. See the great love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. Let us end with a couple of examples of grace with which you will be familiar. Peter is the rock upon the church of which we are now a part, is built. Maybe you've been as inconsistent as Peter. Do you think you have? Have you been a pretty inconsistent Christian? Hands up if you think you've been reasonably inconsistent. About five of us. Oh, good. Okay, good. We're getting with the program. You don't want to be left out with the hands up. So basically, right, we have been inconsistent. Maybe, maybe we have been as inconsistent as Peter, who promised Jesus everything and then delivered nothing. He also went back on what God said to him. God showed him the Gentiles were going to be included. A few, you know, Jewish Christians got annoyed with him, and he went back on it. So Peter was quite capable, after the resurrection, of going back on the word of God. Maybe you've done the same. Maybe God has spoken to you and shown you things, and maybe you've gone back on what he said. Join the club. It's pretty normal. Let's call it a Peter. You've done a Peter. But is there anybody in this room that's ever publicly denied Jesus three times? Anybody done that? Been under pressure, right? And somebody has looked you in the eye and said, do you know Jesus? Is there anybody that's denied they've known him and actually called down curses on his name in the Greek? Peter cursed Jesus and denied that he knew him. Ever done that? Oh, so we haven't done a Peter then. Oh, that's interesting. We're, We're less than the Peter. Interesting. So do you think you could feed his sheep then? Do you think you could be recommissioned? Would that be a possibility? If Jesus could recommission Peter, the denier, do you think he could possibly recondition, you know, recommission you? What do you think? Is that theoretically possible? Yes, it is, isn't it? Theoretically. Do you know that when Jesus is recommissioning Peter, Peter is still failing? So in the Greek, there are various different words for love. And so basically, Jesus says to Peter, um, do you agape me, which is the highest spiritual form of love? And um, Peter says... I am your friend, which is a lower form of love. So Jesus has another go. Peter, do you agape me? He says, I am your friend. So Jesus comes down to his level and says, are you my friend? He says, I am your friend. Isn't that pathetic? That was Peter's reinstatement. Could you be reinstated? Philip, Julie, Mark, Alina, Ed, Hannah, Alice. Put your own name, Johan. Could you be reinstated? If Peter could be reinstated, do you think? Let's have a go at Paul. He wrote much of the New Testament, as we know, and is more responsible for the definition of what we believe than anybody else other than Jesus. So you may have been so zealous that you dismissed other Christians because they weren't as spiritual as you. Like Paul did when Mark cocked it up. He just sent him away. He had no grace for him, no patience. He betrayed him. He let him down. And so Paul goes, yeah, you're just not good enough. See ya. Ever done that? Ever dismissed another Christian because they're just not spiritual enough? I imagine some of us will have done that. Um, you may also have chosen to speak the truth in love, as Paul sometimes did, not in love, to various people he was trying to help in the early church. He got furious with them. Ever done that? Got furious with other Christians? I think you probably have. But 
Is there anybody in this room that's overseen the execution of a Christian? Hands up. Any executors? No? You've never executed a Christian? Oh, that's quite interesting, isn't it? And yet Paul is reinstated by Jesus. And he uses him more powerfully than anybody else has ever been used. I think you can see where I'm going, can't you? If you haven't quite failed Jesus to the extent of Peter and Paul, perhaps you could allow the Lord to recommission you or commission you. Let's make this a very bad session for guilt and shame. A very bad day for guilt and shame. And a very, very good day for our relationship with God. Deal? Right. Now we're going to sing some lovely songs. They're songs about God. You'll probably know them. And basically, you could sing them with all your heart. I'm going to suggest that as you do that... If you have a pervasive feeling of guilt and shame, if you know what it's attached to, or even if you don't, you bring it to the trash man of the world while you're singing the songs. And then when we've done that, we're going to recommission one another. Does that sound like fun? And then we could actually enjoy church. We could enjoy God. Yeah, because there's nothing between us anymore. Does that sound like a fair deal? It's not a fair deal. Is it a gracious deal? Yes, it is. Let's get rid of the chairs. We don't need those.